First, a summary of the meaning of mindfulness and an intro to today's guest. Being connected to what's going on is part of the puzzle, but I think what's a bit undersold or undervalued is also that connection and engagement to the present moment has to be met with some sort of intentionality. Being able to make a promise or hold an intention and then use your awareness to monitor whether you're following those intentions. And if you're putting those things together, there has to be some sort of intention about what attitude you want to have or what value you'd like to see manifest in the world or what's right and what's wrong that is being used as a sort of comparator against the awareness that's afforded by being engaged in the moment. I'm Norman Farb. I'm in the Department of Psychology and I'm an associate professor. I study uh, emotion and well-being, broadly stated, and uh, I'm especially interested in how emotions and the sense of well-being change over time for better and for worse. (laughs) So uh, some of it's, you know, happier climbs where people are taking courses or doing training or or trying different techniques to improve their well-being. And the other sort of pull of my research focuses more on vulnerability to mood disorders, especially uh, depression. Welcome to 2020 and a new season of View to View. For this next season, we tap into the amazing breadth of expertise on the U of T Mississauga campus and focus on a main driving question for the series this year. For this particular episode, because it is January and people may have started off with some intentions for the new year ahead, which, statistically speaking, might be starting to wane right about now. Hmm, or is it just me? Our main question, or the eye on why for this episode, why is meditation and mindfulness so important for us? And why is it on so many people's radar these days? That, of course, led to a few related follow-up questions. I am delighted to say that we are turning to Professor Norman Farb from UTM's Department of Psychology for an answer to this question, but also for some inspiration about maintaining a meditation and mindfulness practice. So if you have made it one of your goals for 2020, hopefully it will help to keep you on track. Again, is it just me? Over the course of this interview, we cover how yoga ties into meditation, how Norman got into this area of research to begin with, spoiler alert, psychology wasn't his original academic path, and a bit of a eureka moment he had in the lab in a study related to students' mental health. Hello, and welcome to View to the U, an eye on UTM research. I'm Carla DeMarco at U of T Mississauga. View to the U is a monthly podcast that will feature UTM faculty members from a range of disciplines who will illuminate some of the inner workings of the science labs and enlighten the social sciences and humanities hubs at UTM. Norman Farb is an associate professor at U of T Mississauga, where he has been on faculty since 2014. He did an undergraduate degree at the University of Waterloo, his master's and PhD at the University of Toronto in 2006 and 2011, respectively, and postdoctoral training at the Rotman Research Institute. He currently oversees the Regulatory and Effective Dynamics, or RAD Lab, which is dedicated to understanding how emotions and regulatory responses unfold over time to determine a person's sense of well-being. We start with how Norman got into this line of research in the first place. I do think I was always sort of a bit of obsessed over some of those big cognitive science questions like, you know, what is consciousness? What is the mind? And even entering computer engineering, I had aspirations of like, I'm going to make, you know, like data from Star Trek. I'm going to figure out how to make an artificial brain and really like figure out where awareness comes from. And then I realized that for me, at least the, the realities of the first few years of computer engineering were very far from that. It was like a lot of calculus. I, I switched into psychology and philosophy and, and thankfully there was some um, really good 
courses and, and programs, that was like a much more immediate gratification because immediately in psychology and, and some type branches of philosophy are talking about the nature of the mind and what is consciousness and what's the purpose of awareness and, and what makes for a good life and things like that. And I was like, oh yeah, I probably should have started off doing that stuff. For me, it felt like a better fit. And that's, I think, you know, a little microcosm also of this sort of mindfulness process is like, I'm suffering, I'm suffering, I'm suffering. And I keep doing the same things. I keep suffering could I take, could I roll the dice? It's not what I expected, but can I try something different? And then if I do that, I might, end, I, I might end up suffering more, right? But I might end up suffering less. And the main driving question. I wanted to focus on sort of the meditation mindfulness piece, because I think, you know, at the start of the new year, people are thinking about ways that they can maybe improve their life, whether it's by, I don't like to use the word resolution or goals, but things like that. I know that part of your research is about meditation and mindfulness. And so I'm wondering why is meditation and being more mindful important for us as humans? And why do you think it's on so many people's radar right now? Yeah, great question. Meditation or mindfulness practices more specifically, I think, have value because they help us to cultivate qualities that we assume everyone walks around having, like being able to choose what you think about, what you pay attention to, to be in touch with how we're feeling and to act sort of responsibly in, in the face of whatever we're feeling, whatever is happening in our bodies. But the reality is most of us have no formal training in these domains other than things our parents yelled at us when we were young. And so uh, what's emerging in modern society is as the main marketplace, I would say, that we are embodying or inhabiting is one where people are competing for our attention, right? Or they want us to feel certain things and associate those feelings with certain people or products or ideas. And uh, the currency is, is attention, right? Like user clicks or like time spent on a page or your, your, the likelihood you're going to go back to a, a given store or service. And so in the face of competition for attention and the absence of any formal education around how to regulate what you pay attention to and for how long, people are finding less and less unadulterated space, I would say, right? Space where it's really just up to you what you pay attention to, do what you want. To the extent now that I think people, more so than in previous times in, in modern history, are throwing themselves into distraction as a way of protecting themselves from the demands on their attention. But distractions are not always uh, satisfying over, over the long term, um, especially if they have negative side effects. Can you talk about like maybe some of the negative side effects? Anything to an extreme probably isn't healthy, and some things even in small quantities aren't healthy. So, you know, binge watching a Netflix show, if it gives you some relief and helps you just compartmentalize all the other stuff going in your life is probably fine but feeling like you have to binge every new show that comes out on netflix or you know a snack in the evening is okay but if you have to constantly be snacking to feel okay in the evening because you're so stressed from the day um, or you have to drink or, or do drugs to get away from the stresses of the day and then the next morning now you have to take like more and more caffeine or stimulation to get over the, the drugs you took the night before uh, it can become this sort of vicious cycle and there are physical and mental limits to, to how much we can just keep from the outside in trying to get leverage on our attention right on our on our own minds um, so what we end up seeing is people feel isolated uh, overwhelmed um, they actually become more reactive to stressors because there is no internal kind of locus of control or it's it's atrophied because most of the solutions that we're employing are external solutions um, and so there's this yearning for well how do I get out of this loop if my 
physical, like objective conditions are good. I have a place to live. I don't have to worry too much about what I, what, whether I can afford to buy groceries or things like that. Like many of us are operating at an okay level, even if we're not, you know, billionaires. Um, so why do I feel worse and worse? And how do I escape from this? If I don't have a clearly diagnosed medical condition, it seems like the, the healthcare system isn't really oriented um, to help us improve our, our um, mental health until we hit that kind of breakdown point. And then that point, now there's an entry point to the healthcare system. So is that really the, the likely predictable future for everyone to just continue toggling between stress and distraction until breakdown, or is there some alternative? And so um, meditation techniques, and much the way that exercise, I would say, became quite popular in, in the 80s and 90s, and now there really almost is like a cultural expectation that you are in some way responsible for your physical fitness. There's a, both a yearning to be able to have some agency and also perhaps a growing expectation that we should be curating our own mental health. And so uh, because of some slowly building scientific evidence base around the clinical efficacy of, of meditation practices and helping to promote stress relief, people are, I think are latching onto it because like maybe this is going to be the thing it helps me break out of this cycle because at some level, even if it's not fully explicit, people realize they're kind of trapped Right? It's this feeling of like, I need, I need to escape from what's happening, but just escaping into distraction is not getting me completely out of the loop. It's just, it's actually part of the loop. Why mindfulness and meditation now, how we can incorporate these practices in our days, and some of the ways in which Norman incorporates meditation in his own life. If there's something mainstream that people believe in will help them, then you tend to have less of this fringe stuff happening. And then if there's no innovation that's introduced into the mainstream or it's not being introduced quickly enough, that's when you start seeing these sort of offshoots of like, well, maybe I should go to this like intense uh, meditation retreat or things like that, which is not to disparage these things, things on the fringe, but I think in terms of historical cycles, we sort of buy in and then sort of opt out of what seems to be happening in, in the sort of mainstream narrative. And this clearly seems to be an opt-out period for a lot of people living in large urban centers. And so if you feel like democracy is voting against you all the time, right, or you feel like the mainstream interests are not your interests, then that's the recipe for sort of, um, even if it's not in a formal way, kind of slowly divesting oneself from the norm and, and trying to look for alternative ways of living. So it feels like that's kind of been happening now, but it's so hard to tell because in the end of the day, you're like, well, I'm stuck in my own echo chamber. I don't know what it's like for someone three degrees of separation from me that, I've, that I haven't met and maybe it looks really different there. And I think one of the questions that I had thinking about your work, but maybe it's hard to quantify, is there something that you would suggest that we can incorporate in our daily lives, like putting aside 10 minutes a day to meditate at a certain time frame? Yeah, so I would say there are a couple foundational elements to sort of breaking out of these cycles. So one of them is, I think you already touched upon this idea of having some intentionality in the new year is a time where people sort of set these these resolutions or intentions to do better than they did before. You know, like, I know I ate a lot of cake over the break, but I'm definitely going to lose weight this year. Being up to something makes a big difference, regardless of whether you're successful or not it's sort of like if you're not even trying to change what's going on if you don't set up you know your expectations that maybe I could improve or grow or learn or something it's very unlikely that anything's going to change and then the absence of intentionality will just do whatever is easy and familiar so setting intentions even if it's as simple as like thinking something to yourself about what you're trying to get out of the day so it doesn't have to be this kind of formal ritualized practice but building some intention setting into the day I think is is very very useful and uh 
there is some research suggesting that people who even set goals even broadly for success in the future tend to just do better without even worrying about the details of how they accomplish it. And then the other element that I think is really crucial is trying to cultivate a sense of awareness as to what's actually going on. So, you know, if I intend to get better, but I'm not actually paying attention to what's happening around me, I'm never going to come up with concrete practical solutions or even recognize where my primary sources of stress are or understand um, what my habits are when I do become stressed. And then without that awareness, there's no way I can be like, well, is this a good habit or a bad habit? I'm just doing what I do. And I have this intention. I wish things got better, but I'm not engaged enough to discover the particular set of circumstances and conditioning is for me that's got me stuck. And so when people say do 10 minutes a day, like you could just spend 10 minutes focusing on your toe and it would provide, I think, a distraction from everything else. And there would probably be some relief from that. Like if, if what you'd normally do with that 10 minutes is ruminating and beating yourself up or replaying negative events from the day and figuring out, oh, I should have done this and all that. 10 minutes of not doing that is already beneficial. That same 10 minutes, I would argue, would give you a little bit more value for time if that time was spent trying to understand like, okay, is there a pattern here and how I'm responding? And also, what am I really up to? Like, what would I like to have happened in the situation? Not in terms of even like, I should have had this great comeback or I should have just like left or something like that but like what would I like to have if I could just have anything in the world like any sort of value what would I like my life to be like so breaking away from the details of like an upset into sort of like what am I aspiring to and at the same time checking in and being like and how am I actually reacting like what am I doing and if you can make those two things clear what do I really deeply desire or wish and what am I doing a lot of possibilities open up because when there's a disconnect between those two things you can say oh man I really need to work to change this because there's this big gap between how I'm living my life and the way I wish my world was in other situations you might be like yeah I'm just running an automatic and it's not really that it's kind of turning out close enough because <laughs> you got to pick your battles right everyone's already feeling overwhelmed and I would argue that most people are doing zero minutes a day of a lot of these things except for when there's sort of culturally sanctioned times like set your new year's resolution or it's your birthday like what are you going to do this year um, or there's a breakdown and you're like how did it come to this and then you start trying to quickly like forensically recompile all of the habits and decisions and inferences that led to this point of breakdown but uh, in a more sort of proactive way we could be doing that a little bit each day and I know just from we haven't really we're still working on publishing this stuff now but even from undergraduate populations just having people check in and report on their mood and stress level each day has a protective benefit on future stress. Anecdotal evidence or reports that come back from students are asked to do these kind of just daily, like two minute check-ins is, this is literally something that I would never ever do on my own. Cause it's just like, I have so many other things to do and just sitting there and putting a little bit of work in into being like, how am I doing? Sometimes it's upsetting, it's not so good, but otherwise it's just invisible. It's, it just gets swept aside until it's unignorable. And usually that's when it's like crisis or breakdown. Norman covers a bit more on mindfulness. The traditional advice is that it's it's better first to do to set up kind of a safe laboratory space to to start to explore one's mind and also to cultivate um, different qualities or, or capacities uh, in much the same way as you could say well should I just go you know try to run as fast as I can in this race or should I start like you know doing some kind of training in a much more controlled or safe environment you know go for slow jogs slowly build myself up and stuff like that so I think the physical training analogies work quite quite well with mental training as well um, they're all based on the same bio biological <laughs> substrates <laughs> uh, depending on your your metaphysical beliefs but I think a lot of us <laughs> believe that so the idea that it might be worth exploring like even five or ten minute practices that are about noticing how 
inconsistent or incoherent our, our attentional foci are, uh, and then trying to develop some sort of a semblance of control, but even at the very beginning, just the ability to monitor and watch things spin out of control and then model, like, what do I do when I violate my intention and my mind wanders? Well, am I angry with myself? Am I judgmental? Or can I be, can I just accept that that's what happens and then slowly bring my attention back to my f- focus in a safe space <laughs> is probably a great way to start. And But the, the broader aspiration, I think, is eventually you'll be able to do that in a heated situation or immediately after some sort of uh, negative or, or intense event. And that's really where the payoff will occur is when is with real life stressors, because that's really where our, our sense of how things are going happens, not just like, oh, I had a great meditation session, so it doesn't matter that uh, someone said they hated me at work. Like, <laughs> trust me, the, what the person says at work is going to affect you more. Um, but you won't, but it's so overwhelming to, to get when you get upset that unless you have um, th- at least the, the, an inkling towards some sort of regulatory habit, you're just going to fall back into the, what, what we do by default, which is often, um, you know, blame, judgment, ruminate, replay, rehash, and then that's back into that sort of spin cy- cycle of either simulating suffering, anticipating future suffering, trying to avoid it, and, and, all, and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So, sorry, I, just, I would just say, I, I would recommend that people try to dip a toe into some sort of um, guided practice to begin with and see whether it, it feels meaningful or even like fun. It might not be like the most pleasurable thing I've ever done, but it does it feel like, oh, something's happening here. Like I'm even noticing, I thought I had control of my mind and I don't, or I'm noticing there are bits of stillness if I can just you know, sit still and keep my focus for, for a few minutes. And there's actually something really amazing about that. And, and if you dip a toe into practice and you get nothing out of it, I think there's lots of other ways to sort of try to cultivate um, awareness or change one's, one's habits. So it's a matter of just exploring what what has a good fit with the individual. Right. And I think I, one of the takeaways I got from the talk that I listened to from the Mind and Life Institute from you is you, you talked about some experience you had where someone was leading you through a practice and had you hold your hands out or something. And you they said, how does that make you feel? And you said, uh, I don't know. <laughs> Cause it, but I think that that sort of touches on being more comfortable with the uncomfortable right that like maybe when you're starting out with meditation it's like it feels foreign and it's not something it's hard to quiet our minds and it's that's that can be uncomfortable yeah i think there can be something um both threatening but also delightful in some ways of of sort of trying on the idea that you really have no idea what's going on yeah i i didn't have this on my questions but i and you don't have to answer it but i was curious what is your meditation practice like or do you make a point of you you meditate every day but again you don't have to answer this that's okay so my formal practice is pretty limited (laughs) and weak these days but i have a lot of sort of like hacks that i've built in um as as someone with sort of two younger kids and you know full-time job and and, you know I'm the only one who's busy of course but uh sorts of excuses but I'm usually doing some sort of intention setting practice in the morning and I condition that um to my like bathroom routine so I like I feel the colds of the floor on my feet and I remember oh I'm supposed to think of like a value for the day like something I'd like to manifest in the day um and then I will purposely not check my phone um, or do certain things until I've already sort of made contact with my family in some way because I'm already thinking about the three like or sometimes 15 emails that someone people sent me between like 10 p.m. and now. Uh, so I try to set up sort of structures in terms of like when it's permissible for me to attend to work and when I want to be attending to family and, and a lot of that is conditioned based on things in my environment or my regular routine. And then in the evenings I try to still do a brief practice before bed which is sort of derived from these kind of mindfulness traditions. So I 
I will try to scan and check in with my body and sort of let my mental claptrap die down a little bit. And then I might spend a bit of time, if I'm not too tired, um, letting my mind range freely and just noticing where it goes once I have a bit of that that calm. But really, in terms of formal practice, that, that might be on average like 10 minutes a day. But I would say the other thing that's really changed for me over um, years now of, of trying to have these sort of contemplative practices is realizing when something's running me, if that makes sense. So when my mind is just racing and I've never really planned to be focused on something. So I keep going back to a past event that was upsetting. I keep focusing on a problem, even though I'm not in a situation to solve it. Like I really want to finish this like data analysis, but I'm on a bus And, and I'll start to notice like you keep trying to solve a problem that you can't solve right now. Uh, and then that might trigger me to start attending more to just sensory events, whether they're in my body or what's around me. And if I can force myself kind of do that or like coax myself into doing that for five or 10 minutes, a lot of times that spin cycle kind of winds down. So I find myself calming down. And so that becomes more of a kind of ad hoc regulatory response to realizing that I'm caught up in a narrative that is either disempowering or upsetting and not constructive. Like not that we should never think about upsetting things, but when you're thinking about an upsetting thing and there's nothing to do about it, it from a emotions evolution perspective, it, it's really important that we pay attention to negative things because negative things can historically, they could end your life or injure you in some way. So if you miss a threat signal, um, it could be really dangerous. Whereas you miss a juicy banana or something. Oh, there might be other bananas. You can probably survive a bit longer. So our brains are kind of skewed to prioritize negative information. It's always available for us to pick up on something negative in a day. And if we don't have any intentionality around it, for most of us, we will end up skewing a bit negative. Research on memory and, and things like that has confirmed that unless you're sort of in the late stages of life. If you think your demise is imminent, that's the only time the, the skew naturally tends towards positive. Cause you're like, I got <laughs> not unlimited time anyway. I don't want to obsess over the, the bad stuff. So, but why wait <laughs> until you get like a terminal diagnosis or something like that to try to, to play with those attentional biases. So it's natural and it can feel like obligatory, but work needs to be put in to counter sort of our, our evolutionarily inherited predispositions. Is there such a thing as being too mindful? I think so. I mean, mindfulness is sort of an umbrella term for a lot of different practices, as well as sort of this idea of being aware of what's happening. It's a, it's a really interesting kind of question. I think in one way, um, trying to use the practice instructions and taking them very literally, even when they're not a good fit for the person, is a big area that's starting to expand and uh, sort of become discovered in in uh, the contemplative research field. And this is particularly important in, in um, cases where people have past traumas. So often we develop strong associations with different stimuli, often feelings within our own body that are linked to the trauma. So if you're trying to be a really good student and your teacher says you need to spend time in the feeling of your breath in your chest, mm -hmm. and that's the exact same feeling that's linked to having a panic attack or that time that this horrible thing happened in the past, and you're just trying to be a good student, so you're like, okay, I'm just going to go there, I'm going to go there and pick up that sensation, and it keeps cueing this trauma memory that you just don't have the capacity really to unpack or the energy to unpack at that time, then you could say, well, just trying to be a good mindfulness practitioner it might actually be harmful and lead to dissociation, depersonalization, or, or deeper entrenchment of the trauma. It's sort of like, it's a tool, and if we really want to believe it's a powerful tool that can change your the way your mind works, you have to use it correctly the same way that you'd want to use like, uh, medication correctly. So we can't kind of have it both ways. You can't assume, well, this is this really powerful technology for reinventing the self, but it couldn't possibly do harm. Everything has an extreme. Is yoga, could it be considered a form of meditation because you're sort of focused on your breathing and holding the poses? Yeah, I mean, uh, I've had the exact same question. And actually, we've just finished a pilot study 
at Harvard with Sarah Lazars as my collaborator and Bo Forbes and some other people where we really want to ask the question like what is it like to go to a, a gym yoga class compared to going to some place where it's a bit more seen as like a, a meditation or contemplative practice so we actually ran two different groups when one is like a very accomplished well-certified like gym yoga instructor teaching the classes and the other person people are, are trained in what's called like integrative yoga therapeutics where you're it's really about cultivating awareness and having the right attitudes and all this intentionality and exploration as opposed to performance and so we just finished running it took us a while because we were sort of doing this on a shoestring and have a major grant for it so we think we just finished our fourth wave of of this stuff we have enough people i think to analyze the data now and and the prediction actually is that both forms of yoga are going to be quite good for you um any sort of practice i think would be good for you and in some ways in terms of immediate stress relief maybe that's sweated out like can you get your body into this pose yoga might actually be superior but in terms of the accrual of of stress and also just the the growth of awareness and and connection to the body and and things like that there is probably quite a big difference if that's explicitly part of the curriculum as opposed to like well if you just stretch a lot you'll gain that awareness the Mm -hmm. prediction is that you won't you'll be looking from sort of outside and it's just like is my chin close enough to my Mm -hmm. knee right now or or not and why is everyone else so skinny and beautiful and i'm this Mm -hmm. you know like all that stuff like as opposed to it being kind of from the inside out and i think there are ways to model that and and we're exploring it in in a bunch of different ways now so yeah again yoga is an umbrella term it could be a profoundly contemplative experience it could be um, a fashion show and it probably is both those things and everything in, in between depending on what you bring to the practice what the teacher's like and what the group you're practicing with is like coming up norman talks about a eureka moment from one of his studies involving student mental health and the impact of his work have you come across any findings um, in particular over the course of your research that really sort of threw you for a loop or surprised you I think every couple of years, you know, well, every study, the data doesn't look how I want it to look like. <laughs> That's a welcome to science kind of thing. <laughs> but uh, yeah, there's been some really interesting uh, challenges we're dealing with even now and looking a lot at undergraduate mental health and people actively resent being made to do things to take care of themselves. What it seems like happened when we make undergrads do diary entries about what something they can do in the next 24 hours, totally open-ended, uh, they can pick it, they, they hate it. Um, and so when I actually started doing the, this research, I thought, oh, I've, I've actually harmed these poor students. Uh, they actually seem like they're more stressed. But when I looked at their daily experience scores, which we were also recording, so not just the retrospective report on like, how was that for you? Did you feel better? Their daily reports actually showed that their stress level was about half out of people who weren't doing the diary entries. So the the narrative around it was like, you made me do more work and I don't like being made to do extra work. Like I can take care of myself, thank you. And the reality was they were benefiting from these practices in, in their own daily reports. But retrospective memory is is very uh, skewed towards like big picture, local events, intense events, and we lose that granularity often. So it creates these really interesting paradoxes. If we want people to take more care of themselves or here I'm speaking about you know, UTM undergraduates not being so stressed out over exams as a paradigm. You might have to upset people a little bit uh, or goad them a little bit, force them, coerce them, incentivize them uh, to change their habits. Because when you're stressed, like I said, you just want to fall back at habit. And so these, that's kind of surprising because like my lay theory would be, well, if I tell you something, you say you're stressed and I say, do this, you won't be stressed. I'd be like, great. And I'll go do it. But that's not actually the reality is like, yeah, if I wasn't so stressed, I would do that thing that would reduce my stress. <laughs> so then, okay, it becomes this really interesting puzzle. So when's the right time to intervene? When's the right time to learn a new habit? It, even if you're really stressed and you're forced to do something extra that turns out to be beneficial like should we make people do that so these are some of the kind of the the research questions we're grappling with uh in in the past couple years our preconceptions our our hypotheses around whether something's going to work or not often have very little to do 
with the reality of the situation and it takes some sort of evidence gathering to really understand whether something is effective for us as individuals or not uh, and that doesn't always require a lot of fancy stats it could just be like yeah i'm gonna keep track of my mood i'm gonna keep track of my stress level for a while doing this versus not doing it and then i'll decide for myself and my position is if she you know if, if, you, if you try a gratitude journal and it doesn't do anything um then the response it might be not to stop doing the journal but not to stop doing something so it's like, okay, you don't want to do the journal. Let's pick something else to experiment with. Yeah. Let's try doing 10 minutes of stretching a day. Let's do yeah. 10. The other thing I wanted to ask you was, um, and I know you've touched on this a lot, but what do you feel is the biggest impact of your work? Yeah, I think the biggest impact of my work has been to try to formalize some of these perennial or ancient wisdom traditions in a way that they can be included in scientific discourse. So whereas before maybe it was like either I'm going to go do the hippie thing, right, and go do meditation or become a yoga teacher, or I could do science. I think we're trying to reveal these are actually compatible systems. I just gave a, a colloquium at Western, I think, a month or two ago where I tried to argue that cognitive neuroscience and like traditional Buddhist philosophy are almost completely congruent once if you don't go all the way up to metaphysics like reincarnation but the idea that like the mind is like inherently conditioned the conditioning is invisible to us is, is the neural model of, of how the brain works and it's also like the buddhist psychology model rather than saying like i discovered something no one ever did before it's more been translational that i could show like from a neural systems account that the transformations that were talked about in a in, from the contemplative practices actually could have a very well-defined empirical model that we can then test and then maybe less successfully that I'm trying to work on is the idea that the scientific tests can then go back and inform the contemplative community and say, I know you have this experience or belief, but it, it itself might be biased or contaminated. And when we actually test in a more impartial way, it turns out, for instance, that having more meditation practice doesn't really make you a better receiver of body signals. You just uh, value the signals you already have more. So someone saying you really have to like be able to feel every bit of your body might actually not be giving a very skillful meditation instruction, but that's coming back from, you know, big science or something. So it's an interesting dynamic sort of being an intermediary between contemplative and scientific communities. And I think the, the biggest contribution I've had is to try to start to build some bridges there where other people could also see themselves as having careers on in those bridge kind of areas. Thank you so much for coming in today to talk about your work. Yeah, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I would like to thank my guest, Norman Farb, for telling us about his well-being research in U of T Mississauga's Department of Psychology and as the principal investigator at the Regulatory and Effective Dynamics Lab at UTM. I would like to thank the Office of the Vice Principal Research for their support, and I would like to thank Fatima Adil and the Medium at UTM for their recent interest and coverage of the podcast. If you listen to the show through iTunes, please consider rating View to the U so that others can find the podcast. And please, for this season, if you have other burning questions for our long list of experts at UTM, send them my way. Details for getting in touch are on our website, on our SoundCloud page, or send them directly to car.demarco at utoronto.ca. Stay tuned. Lastly, and as always, thank you to the musical director, Tim Lane, for his tracks and support. Thank you. Thank you.